Chapter Thirteen, Part Five of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume Two. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume Two, by John Bagnell Bury. Chapter Thirteen, The Revival of Athens and Her Second League, Part Five. Athens under the restored democracy. When Pericles declared that Athens was the school of Greece, this was rather his ideal of what she should be than a statement of a reality. It would have surprised him to learn that, when imperial Athens fell from her throne, his ideal would be fulfilled. This was what actually happened. It was not until Athens lost her empire that she began to exert a great decisive influence on Greek thought and civilization. This influence was partly exerted by the establishment of schools in the strict sense. The literary school of Isocrates and the philosophical school of Plato, which attracted to Athens men from all quarters of the Hellenic world. But the increase in the intellectual influence of Athens was largely owing to the fact that she was becoming herself more receptive of influence from without. She was becoming Hellenic as well as Athenian. She was beginning to become even something more than Hellenic. This tendency towards cosmopolitanism had been promoted by philosophical speculation, which rises above national distinctions, and it is manifested variously in the Panhellenism of Isocrates, in the attitude of such different men as Plato and Xenophon towards Athens, in the increasing number of foreign religious worships established at Athens or Piraeus, in a general decline of local patriotism, and in many other ways. There was perhaps no institution which had wider influence in educating Greek thought in the fourth century than the theatre. Its importance in city life was recognized by practical statesmen. It was therefore a matter of the utmost moment that the old Athenian comedy, turning mainly on local politics, ceased to be written, and a new school of comic poets arose who dwelt with subjects of general human interest. Here Athens had a most effectual instrument for spreading ideas and the tragedies of the fourth century, though as literature they were of less note and consequence than the comedies, were not less significant of the spirit of the time. They were all dominated by the influence of Euripides, the great teacher of rationalism, and the daring critic of all established institutions and beliefs. And the comic poets were also under his spell. It can easily be seen that the cultivation of these wider sympathies was connected with the growth of what is commonly called individualism. By this is meant that the individual citizen no longer looks at the outside world through the medium of his city, but regards it directly, as it were, with his own eyes and in its bearings on him individually. He is no longer content to express his religious feelings, simply as one member of the state, in the common usages of the state religion, but seeks to enter into an immediate personal relation with the supernatural world. And since his own life has become for him something independent of the city, his attitude to the city itself is transformed. The citizen of Athens has become a citizen of the world. His duty to his country may conflict with his duty to himself as a man, and thus patriotism ceases to be unconditionally the highest virtue. Again, men begin to put to themselves, more or less explicitly, the question whether the state is not made for the individual, and not the individual for the state, a complete reversal of the old unquestioning submission to the authority of the social organism it followed that greater demands were made upon the state by the citizen for his own private welfare, and that the citizen, 
feeling himself tied by no indissoluble bond to his country, was readier than formerly to seek his fortune elsewhere. Thus we find, in the single field of military science, Athenian officers acting independently of their country, in the pay of foreign powers, whenever it suited them. Conan, Xenophon, Iphicrates, Chabrius, and others. A vivid, exaggerated description of this spirit has been drawn by Plato in one of his famous contributions to political science, the Republic. The horses and asses, he says, have a way of marching along with all the rights and dignities of free men, and they will run at anybody whom they meet in the street, if he does not leave the road clear for them, and all things are just ready to burst with liberty. When he describes the excessive freedom of democracy, he is dealing with the growth of individualism as a result of freedom in its constitutional sense, but his argument that individualism is the fatal fruit of a democratic constitution rests largely on the double sense of the word freedom. The notable thing is that no man did more to promote the tendencies which are here deplored by Plato than Plato himself and his fellow philosophers. If any single man could be held responsible for the inevitable growth of individualism, it would be perhaps Euripides, but assuredly, next to Euripides, it would be Plato's revered master, Socrates, the son of Sophroniscus. When the history of Greece was being directed by Pericles and Cleon, Nicias and Lysander, men little dreamed, either at Athens or elsewhere, that the interests of the world were far more deeply concerned in the doings of one eccentric Athenian who held aloof from public affairs. The work of Pericles and Lysander affected a few generations in a small portion of the globe, but the spirit of that eccentric Athenian was to lay an impress, indelible forever, upon the thought of mankind. The ideas which we owe to Socrates are now so organically a part of the mind of civilized men, so familiar and commonplace, that it is hard to appreciate the intellectual power which was required to originate them. Socrates was the first champion of the supremacy of the intellect as a court from which there is no appeal. He was the first to insist, without modification or compromise, that a man must order his life by the guidance of his own intellect, without any regard for mandates of external authority or for the impulses of emotion, unless his intellect approves. Socrates was thus a rebel against authority as such, and he shrank from no consequences. He did not hesitate to show his companions that an old man has no title to respect because he is old, unless he is also wise, or that an ignorant parent has no claim to obedience on the mere account of parental relation. Knowledge and veracity, the absolute sovereign of the understanding, regardless of consequences, regardless of all prejudices, connected with family or city, this was the ideal of Socrates, consistently and uncompromisingly followed but men using their intellects often come to different conclusions. The command issued by an authority which Socrates may reject has been, directly or ultimately, the result of some mental process. It is manifest that we require a standard of truth and an explanation of the causes of error. The solution of Socrates is, briefly, this. When we make a judgment, we compare two ideas, and in order to do so correctly, it is obvious that these ideas must be clear and distinct. Error arises from comparing ideas that are undefined and vague. Definition was thus the essential point, and it was an essential novelty, in the Socratic method for arriving at truth. Its necessity is a commonplace now, and we have rather to guard against its dangers. The application of this method to ethics was the chief occupation of Socrates, for the interest of human life and its perplexities entirely absorbed him. 
In the history of ethics his position is supreme. He was the founder of utilitarianism. He arrived at the doctrine by analyzing the notion of good. The result of his analysis was, the good is the useful. Closely connected was the principle that virtue is happiness, and this was the basis of the famous Socratic paradox, that no man willingly does wrong, but only through ignorance, for there is no man who would not will his own happiness. It is easy to point out the errors of this startling statement. It is perhaps easier to forget how much wrong-doing is due to the confused thinking of clouded brains, and the ignorance of untrained minds. The man who had no respect for authority was not likely to accept the gods from the range of his criticism, and the popular religion could not sustain examination. Socrates was as little orthodox as Anaxagoras and other impious philosophers, but he made no new departure in the field of theology. He doubtless believed in the existence of a god, but as to the nature of the divine principle he was probably what we call an agnostic, as he certainly was in regard to the immortality of the soul. Socrates, then, was the originator of a new logical method, the founder of utilitarianism, and, above all, the unsparing critic of all things in heaven and earth, or rather on earth only, for he disdained things in heaven as uninteresting or irrelevant, a fearless critic, undeterred by any feeling of piety or prejudice. He never wrote anything, he only conversed. But he conversed with the ablest young men of the day, who were destined afterwards to become immortal themselves as thinkers, he communicated to them, to Plato, to Aristippus, to Euclides, his own spirit of scepticism and criticism. He imbued them with intellectual courage and intellectual freedom. He never preached, he only discussed. That was the Socratic method, dialectic or the conversational method. He did not teach, for he professed to have no knowledge. He would only confess that he was exceptional in knowing that he knew nothing. This was the Socratic irony. He went about showing that most popular notions, as soon as they are tested, prove to be inconsistent and untenable. He wished to convince every man he met that his convictions would not stand examination. We can easily conceive how stimulating this was to young men, and how extremely irritating to the old. Haunting the marketplaces and the gymnasia, Socrates was always ready to entrap men of all ages and ranks into argument, and many a grudge was owed him by revered and conceited seniors, whose foggy minds he exposed to ridicule by means of his prudent interrogations. Though no man ever taught more effectually than Socrates, he was not a teacher. He had no course of lectures to give, and therefore he took no fee. Herein lay his distinction from the sophists, to whom by his speculation, his skepticism, his mastery of argument, his influence over young men, he naturally belongs, and with whom he was generally classed. He soon became a notorious figure in the streets of Athens. Nature had marked him out among other men by his grotesque, satyr-like face. Though he was the child of democracy, born to a heritage of freedom in a city where the right of free discussion was unrestrained, the sacred name of democracy was not more sheltered than anything else from the criticism of Socrates. He railed, for instance, at the system of choosing magistrates by lot, one of the protections of democracy at Athens. He was unpopular with the mass, for he was an enemy of shams and ignorance and superstition. Honest democrats of the type of Thrasybulus and Anatus, who did their duty but had no desire to probe its foundations, regarded him as a dangerous free thinker, who spent his life in diffusing ideas subversive of the social order. They might point to the ablest of the young men who had kept company with him and say, Behold the fruits of his conversation! Look at Alcibiades, his favorite companion! 
who has done more than any other man to ruin the country. Look at Critias, who, next to Alcibiades, has wrought the deepest harm to Athens, who, brought up in the Socratic circle, first wrote a book against democracy, then visited Thessaly and stirred up the serfs against their masters, and finally, returning here, inaugurated the reign of terror. Look, on the other hand, at Plato, an able young man, whom the taste for idle speculation, infused by Socrates, has seduced from the service of his country. Or look at Xenophon, who, instead of serving Athens, has gone to serve her enemies. Truly Socrates and his propaganda have done little good to the Athenian state. However unjust any particular instance might seem, it is easy to understand how considerations of this kind would lead many practical, unspeculative men to look upon Socrates and his ways with little favor. And from their point of view they were perfectly right. His spirit and the ideas that he made current were an insidious menace to the cohesion of the social fabric, in which there was not a stone or joint he did not question. In other words, he was the same active apostle of individualism, which led in its further development to the subversion of that local patriotism which had inspired the cities of Greece in her days of greatness. And this thinker, whose talk was shaking the Greek world in its foundations, though none guessed it, was singled out by the Delphic priesthood for a distinguished mark of approbation. In the truest oracle that was ever uttered from the Pythian tripod, it was declared that no one in the world was wiser than Socrates. We know not at what period of the philosopher's career this answer was given, but if it was seriously meant, it showed a strange insight which we should hardly have looked for at the shrine of Delphi. The Delphic priesthood were skilful enough in adjusting their policy to the changing course of events, but they cannot be suspected of brooding over the mysteries of things to come, or feeling the deeper pulsations of the thoughts of men. The motive of the oracle concerning the wisdom of Socrates is an unsolved problem. If it were an attempt to enlist his support, in days when religion was threatened by such men as Anaxagoras, it shows an unexpected perception of his importance, united with a by no means surprising blindness to the significance of his work. Socrates died five years after the fall of the Athenian Empire, and the manner of his death set a seal upon his life. Anatus, the honest democratic politician who had been prominent in the restoration of the democracy, came forward with some others, as a champion of the state religion, and accused Socrates of impiety. The accusation ran, Socrates is guilty of crime, because he does not believe in the gods recognized by the city, but introduces strange supernatural beings. He is also guilty because he corrupts the youth. The penalty proposed was death, but the charge was lodged in the archon's office. Socrates would leave Attica, and no one would have hindered him from doing so. But Socrates was full of days, he had reached the age of seventy, and life spent otherwise than in conversing in the streets of Athens would have been worthless to him. He surprised the city by remaining to answer the charge. The trial was heard in a court of five hundred and one judges, the king Archon presiding, and the old philosopher was found guilty by a majority of sixty. It was a small majority, considering that the general truth of the accusation was undeniable. According to the practice of Athenian law, it was open to a defendant when he was condemned to propose a lighter punishment than that fixed by the accuser, and the judges were required to choose one of the two sentences. Socrates might have saved his life if he had proposed an adequate penalty, but he offered only a small fine, and was consequently condemned by a much larger majority to death. He drank the cup of doom a month later, discoursing with his disciples as eagerly as ever till his last hour. 
the actual reply of Socrates at his trial has not been preserved. But we know its tone and spirit and much of its tenor, for it supplied his companion Plato, who was present, with the material of a work which stands absolutely alone in literature. In the Apology of Socrates, Plato has succeeded in catching the personality of the master and conveying its stimulus to his readers. There can be no question that this work reproduces the general outline of the actual defense, which is here wrought into an artistic form. And we see how utterly impossible it was for Socrates to answer the accusation. He enters into an explanation of his life and motives, and has no difficulty in showing that many things popularly alleged against him are false. But with the actual charge of holding and diffusing heterodox views, he deals briefly and unsatisfactorily. He was not condemned unjustly, according to the law. And that is the intensity of the tragedy. There have been no better men than Socrates, and yet his accusers were perfectly right. It is not clear why their manifesto for orthodoxy was made at that particular time, but it is probable that twenty years later such an action would have been a failure. Perhaps the facts of the trial justify us in the rough conclusion that two out of every five Athenian citizens were then religiously indifferent. In any case, the event had a wider than a merely religious significance. The execution of Socrates was the protest of the spirit of the old order against the growth of individualism. Seldom in the course of history have violent blows of this kind failed to recoil upon the striker and serve the cause they were meant to harm. Socrates was remembered at Athens with pride and regret. His spirit began to exercise an influence which the tragedy of his death enhanced. His companions never forgave the democracy for putting their master to death. He lived and grew in the study of their imaginations, and they spent their lives in carrying on his work. They carried forward his work, but they knew not what they were doing. They had no suspicion that in pursuing these speculations to which they were stimulated by the Socratic method, they were sapping the roots of Greek city life as it was known to the men who fought at Marathon. Plato was a true child of Socrates, and yet he was vehement in condemning that individualism which it had been the life-work of Socrates to foster. Few sights are stranger than Plato and Xenophon turning their eyes away from their own free country to regard with admiration the constitution of Sparta, where their beloved master would not have been suffered so much as to open his mouth, it was a distinct triumph for the Lacedaemonians when their constitution, which the Athenians of the age of Pericles regarded as old-fashioned machinery, was selected by the greatest thinker of Athens as the nearest existing approach to the ideal. Indeed, the Spartan organization, at the very time when Sparta was making herself detested throughout Greece, seems to have attracted general admiration from political thinkers. It attracted them because the old order survived there, the citizen absolutely submissive to the authority of the state, and not looking beyond it. Elsewhere they were troubled by the problem of reconciling the authority of the state with the liberty of the individual citizen. At Sparta there was no such trouble, for the state was absolute. Accordingly, they saw in Sparta the image of what a state should be, just because it was relatively free from that individualism which they were themselves actively promoting by their speculations in political philosophy. How freely such speculations ranged at this time is illustrated by the fact that the fundamental institution of ancient society, slavery, was called in question. It had indeed been called in question by Euripides, and the heterodox modern views of Euripides were coming into fashion. One thinker expounded the doctrine that slavery was unnatural. 
Speculation even went so far as to stir the question of the political subjection of women. The Parliament of Women, a comedy of Aristophanes, ridiculed women's rights, and in Plato's ideal republic women are on a political equality with men. Socialistic theories were also rife, and were a mark for the mockery of Aristophanes in the same play. Plato seized upon the notion of communism, and made it one of the principles of his ideal state. But his object was not that of the ordinary collectivist, to promote the material well-being of all, but rather to make his citizens better, by defending them against poverty and ambition. Before he died, Plato had come to the conviction that communism was impracticable, and in the state which he adumbrated in his old age, he recognized private property, though he vested the ownership not in the individual, but in the family. In this period, during the fifty years after the battle of Agaspotomy, the art of writing prose was brought to perfection at Athens, and this is closely connected with the characteristic tendency which has engaged our attention. While Socrates and others had been bringing about a revolution in thought, the Sicilian Gorgias and other professors of rhetoric or style had been preparing an efficient vehicle for diffusing ideas. Prose is the natural instrument of criticism and argument. It is a necessary weapon for intellectual persuasion, and therefore the fourth century is an age of prose. The circumstance that the great Athenian poets of the fifth century had no successors in the fourth does not prove any decline in brains or in imagination. If Plato had been born half a century earlier, he would have been a rival of Aeschylus and Sophocles. If Aeschylus and Sophocles had been born two or three generations later, they would have expressed their genius in prose. Euripides, who has come under the influence of the critical spirit, seems sometimes like a man belated. He used the old vehicle to convey thoughts for which it was hardly suited. It must always be remembered that the great dramatic poets of the fifth century bore an unalienable religious character, and as soon as the day came when the men of the highest literary faculty were no longer in touch with the received religion, drama of the old kind ceased to be written. That is why the fourth century is an age of prose. Tragic poetry owes its death to Euripides and the Socratic spirit. The eager individualism of the age found its natural expression in prose, whose rhythmical periods demanded almost as much care and art as poetry, and the plastic nature of the Greek language rendered it a most facile instrument for the purposes of free thought and criticism. Thus Athens became really a school for Greece, as soon as that individualism prevailed which Pericles had unwittingly foreshadowed in the very same breath. I say that Athens is the school of Hellas, and that the individual Athenian in his own person seems to have the power of adapting himself to the most varied forms of action with the utmost versatility and grace. It must never be forgotten that it is to the democratic Athenian law courts that the perfecting of Attic prose was mainly due. This institution had, as we saw, called into being a class of professional speech-writers. But there were many who were not content with learning off, and reciting in court, speeches which a speech-writer like Lysias wrote for them, but wished to learn themselves in the art of speaking. For those who aspired to make their mark in debates in the assembly, this was a necessity. The most illustrious instructor in oratory at this period was Isocrates. But the school of Isocrates had a far wider scope and higher aim than to teach the constitution of sentences or the arrangement of topics in a speech. It was a general school of culture, a discipline intended to fit men for public life. Questions of political science were studied, 
and Isocrates likes to describe his course of studies as philosophy. But it was to Plato's school in the academy that youths of the day went to study philosophy in the stricter sense. The discipline of these two rival schools, for there was rivalry between them, though their aims were different, was what corresponded at Athens to our university education. And the pupils of Isocrates, as well as those of Plato, had to work hard. For thoroughness of method was one of the distinctive characteristics of Isocrates. His school attained a panhellenic reputation. Pupils came to him from all quarters of the world. Our city, he says, is regarded as the established teacher of all who speak or teach others to speak. And naturally so, since men see that our city offers the greatest prizes to those who possess this faculty, provides the most numerous and various schools for those who, having resolved to enter the real contest, desire a preparatory discipline, and further affords to all men that experience which is the main secret of success in speaking. The tone of the teaching of Isocrates harmonized with the national position which he held. He took a large view of all things. There was nothing narrow or local in his opinions. And not less important than the width of his horizon was the high moral tone in which his thoughts were constantly pitched. Isocrates discharged not only the duties which are in modern times discharged by university teachers, but also the functions of a journalist of the best kind. Naturally nervous and endowed with a poor voice, he did not speak in the assembly, but when any great question moved him he would issue a pamphlet in the form of a speech, for the purpose of influencing public opinion. We may suspect that the Athenians appreciated these publications more for their inimitable excellence of style than for their political wisdom. A highly remarkable passage of Isocrates expresses and applauds the wide-minded cosmopolitanism which was beginning to prevail in Greece. He says that Athens has so distanced the rest of the world in power of thought and speech that her disciples have become the teachers of all other men. She has brought it to pass that the name of Greek should be thought no longer a matter of race, but a matter of intelligence, and should be given to the participators in our culture, rather than to the sharers of our common origin. Thirty or forty years earlier, no one, perhaps, except Euripides, would have been bold enough to speak like that. But Isocrates did not see that this enlightenment, which he admires, was closely connected with the decay of public spirit, which he elsewhere deplores. It is curious to find the man who approves of citizenship of the world looking back with regret to the days of Solon, and proposing to revive the old powers of censorship which the court of the Areopagus possessed over the lives of Athenian citizens. The form and features of an age are wont to be mirrored in its art, and one effective means of winning a concrete notion of the spirit of the fourth century is to study the works of Praxiteles, and compare them with the sculptures which issued from the workshop of Phidias. Just as the citizen was beginning to assert his own individuality as more than a mere item in the state, so the plastic artist was emancipating his art from its intimate connection with the temples of the gods, and its subordination to architecture. For in the fifth century, apart from a few colossal statues like those which Phidias wrought for Athens and Olympia, the finest works of the sculptor's chisel were to decorate frieze or pediment. In the fourth century the architect indeed still required the sculptor's service, Scopas, for instance, was called upon in his youth to decorate the temple of Athena Alia at Tegea, in his later years to make a frieze for the tomb of a Carian prince. But in general the sculptor developed his art more independently of architecture, 
and all the great works of Praxiteles were complete in themselves and independent. And, as sculpture was emancipating itself from the old subordination to architecture, so it also emancipated itself from the religious ideal. In the age of Phidias, the artist who fashioned a god sought to express in human shape the majesty and immutability of a divine being, and this ideal had been perfectly achieved. In the fourth century the deities lose their majesty and changelessness. They are conceived as physically perfect men and women, with human feelings, though without human sorrows. They are invested with human personalities. The contrast may be seen by looking at the group of gods in the frieze of the Parthenon, and then at some of the works of Praxiteles, the Hermes, which was set up in the temple of Hera at Olympia, and is preserved there, the Aphrodite of Cnidus, a woman shrinking from revealing her beauty as she enters the bath, or the satyr, with the shape of a man and the mind of a beast. Thus sculpture is marked by individualism in a double sense. Each artist is freer to work out an individual path of his own, and the tendency of all artists is to portray the individual man or woman rather than the type, and even the individual phase of emotion rather than the character. The general spirit of the Athenians in their political life corresponds to this change. Men came, more and more, as a means for administering to the needs of the individual. We might also say that they conceived of it as a cooperative society for making profits to be divided among the members. This, at least, was the tendency of public opinion. They were consequently more disinclined to enter upon foreign undertakings, which were not either necessary for the protection and promotion of their commerce, or likely to fill their purses. The fourth century was therefore, for Athens, an age of less ambition and glory, but of greater happiness and freedom than the fifth. The decisive circumstance for Athens was that, when she lost her empire, she did not lose her commerce. This was a cruel blow to Corinth, since it was to destroy the Athenian trade that Corinth had brought about the war. The fact shows on how firm foundations Athenian commerce rested. The only rival Athens had to fear was Rhodes, which was becoming a centre of traffic in the southeastern Mediterranean, but was not yet destined to interfere seriously with Athenian trade for a long time yet. The population of Attica had declined, Plague and war reduced the number of adult male citizens from at least 35,000 to 21,000. But that was not unfortunate, for there were no longer out-settlements to receive the surplus of the population, and even with the diminished numbers there was a surplus which sought employment in foreign mercenary service. The mercantile development of Athens is shown by the increase of the Piraeus at the expense of the city, in which many plots of ground now became deserted, and by the growth of private banks. It had long been a practice to deposit money in temples, and the priesthoods used to lend money on interest. This suggested to money-changers the idea of doing likewise, and Passion founded a famous house at Athens, which operated with a capital of fifty talents, and had credit at all Greek centres of commerce. Thus business could be transacted by exchanging letters of credit instead of paying in coin, and the introduction of this system, even on such a small scale, shows the growth of mercantile activity. Money was now much more plentiful, and prices far higher than before. This was due to the large amount of the precious metals, chiefly gold, which had been brought into circulation in the Greek world in the last quarter of the fifth century. The continuous war led to the coinage of the treasures which had been accumulating for many years in temples, and the banking system circulated the money which would otherwise have been hoarded in private houses. 
but although the precious metals became plentiful, the rate of interest did not fall. Men could still get twelve percent for a loan of their money. This fact is highly significant. It shows clearly that industries were more thriving, and trade more active, and consequently capital in greater demand. The high rate of interest must always be remembered when we read of a Greek described as wealthy with a capital which would nowadays seem small. Thus a fortune of fifty talents, little more than ten thousand English pounds, would yield an income of nearly fifteen hundred, and that sum had an enormously greater purchasing power than the equivalent weight of gold to-day. Such incomes were extremely rare. Communistic ideas were a consequence, perhaps inevitable, of the growth of individualism and the growth of capital. The poorer burghers became more and more acutely alive to the inconsistency between the political equality of all citizens and the social and economical advantages enjoyed by the rich. Political equality seemed to point to social equality as a logical sequel. In fact, full and equal political equality could not be secured without social equality also, since the advantages of wealth necessarily involved superiorities in political influence. Thus, just as in modern Europe, so in ancient Greece, capital and democracy produced socialists, who pleaded for a levelling of classes by means of a distribution of property by the state. Aristophanes mocked these speculations in his Parliament of Women and his Wealth. The idea of communism which Plato develops on lines of his own in the Republic was not an original notion of the philosopher's brain, but was suggested by the current communistic theories of the day. It is well worthy of consideration that the Athenians did not take the step from political to social democracy, and this discretion may have been partly due to the policy of those statesmen who, doubtless conscious of the danger, regarded the theoric fund as an indispensable institution. The changed attitude of the individual to the state is shown by the introduction of a fixed remuneration for half a drachma to the Athenian citizens for attending the meetings of the assembly, and the rise in prices is illustrated by the subsequent increase of this remuneration. For the regular sessions, in which the proceedings were unattractive, the pay was raised to a drachma and a half. For the other meetings, which were more exciting, it was fixed at a drachma. The remuneration for serving in the law courts was not increased. It was found that half a drachma was sufficient to draw applicants for the judge's ticket. Payment for the discharge of political duties was part of the necessary machinery of the democracy, but the distribution of spectacle money to the poor citizens was a luxury which involved an entirely different principle. It is uncertain when the practice of giving the price of his theatre ticket to the poor Athenian was first introduced. It has been attributed to Pericles, but it is possible that it was not introduced till Athens began to recover after the fall of her empire. In any case, the principle became established in the fourth century of distributing theoric monies, which were supposed to be spent on religious festivals. The citizens came to look forward to subsequent and large distributions. The surplus revenue of the state, instead of being saved for emergencies, was placed in the theoric fund, and this theoric fund became so important that it ultimately required a special minister of finance to manage it. Those statesmen those statesmen under whose guidance the theoric doles were most liberal had naturally the greatest influence with the mass of citizens, and consequently finance acquired a new importance, and financial ability was developed in a very high degree. The state thus assumed the character of a commercial society. Dividends were a political necessity, and in order to meet it, heavier taxation was demanded. 
We have seen how, when war broke out with Sparta, in the year in which the Second Athenian Confederacy was formed, a property tax was imposed, and the properties of the citizens were assessed anew for this purpose. Thus the state provided for the comfort of its poorer burghers at the expense of their wealthier fellows. It is, as it were, publicly recognized as a principle of political science that the end of the state is the comfort and pleasure of its individual members, and everything has to be made subordinate to this principle, which is outwardly embodied in the theoric fund. This principle affected the foreign policy of Athens, as we have already observed. When she took the step of sending out settlers to Samos and elsewhere, in defiance of the public opinion of Greece, her chief motive was doubtless pecuniary profit. Constitutionally, the restored Athenian democracy was a remarkable success. The difficulties which the democratic statesmen encountered after the overthrow of the Thirty had been treated with a wisdom and moderation which are in striking contrast with the violence and vengefulness shown in other Greek states at similar crises. Most democratic men of means had been robbed of property under the tyranny of the oligarchs, and the property had been sold. Were the purchasers to be compelled to restore it without compensation? Were all the acts of the Thirty to be declared illegal? Such a measure would have created a bitter, discontented party in the state. Some of the chief democratic leaders voluntarily resigned all claim to compensation for the property they had lost, and this example promoted a general inclination on both sides to concession and compromise. The wisdom and tact displayed in this matter were not the least of the services which Thrasybulus and his fellows rendered to their country. No oligarchical conspiracy endangered the domestic peace of Athens again. No citizen, if it were not a philosophical speculator, called the democracy in question. At this epoch the laws were revised, and the register of burghers was revised, but the constitution was left practically unaltered. A change indeed was made in the presidency of the assembly, which had hitherto belonged to the Piritanus, or Board of Ten, selected every seven days from the presiding tribe in the council. The close organic relations between the council and assembly rendered it needful that members of the council should preside in the assembly, but the presidency of the assembly was now divorced from the presidency of the council, and invested in a body of nine, selected one from each of the nine tribes which were not presiding. This change was obviously designed to form a check on the administration. The presiding tribe in the council could no longer deal directly with the assembly, but was obliged to present its measures to the people through an intermediate body, which belonged indeed to the council, but not to its own part of the council. The year in which these new reforms were probably made witnessed also the introduction of a new alphabet as the official script of the state. The old Attic alphabet, with its hard-worked vowels doing duty for more than one sound, was discontinued, and henceforward the stones which record the public acts of the Athenian people are inscribed in the Ionic alphabet, with separate signs for the long and short E and O, and distinct symbols for the double consonants. It is plain that Athens needed, at this period, not men of genius or enthusiasm, but simply men of ability, for the conduct of her affairs. She had no great aims to achieve, no grave dangers to escape, which demanded a Pericles or a Themistocles. A man of genius would have found no scope in the politics of Athens for two generations after the fall of her empire. Men of great ability she had, men who were thoroughly adequate to the comparatively unambitious role which she had wisely imposed upon herself, Agirius, Calistratus, and afterwards Eubulus. To us they are all shadowy figures. 
Agirgius inaugurated the profit system which afterwards resulted in the institution of the theoric fund, and it was he who opposed and discredited the extreme anti-Spartan policy of the heroes of Philae. His nephew, Callistratus, enjoyed a longer career and played a greater part in the affairs of Greece, conspicuous as the founder of the Second Confederacy, as the negotiator of the Peace of Callias, and then as the opponent of Epimenondas. His policy throughout was consistent and reasonable. He aimed at rendering Athens powerful enough to be independent of Sparta. He desired that Sparta and Athens should stand side by side as the two leading states in Greece, and he recognized that the neighborhood of Attica to Boeotia necessarily laid upon Athens the policy of opposing the aggrandizement of Thebes. Agirgius and Callistratus might once and again fill the office of strategos, but, like Cleon and Hyperbolus, they exercised their influence as recognized, practically official, advisers of the assembly. The art of war became every year more and more an art, and little could be accomplished except by generals who devoted their life to the military profession. Such were Timotheus, the hero of Lucas Cabrius, the victor of Naxos, and above all, Hippocrates, whom we have met so many places and in so many guises. Timotheus was a rich man. His father Conan had left him a fortune, and he could afford to serve his country and his country only. But Chabrias and Iphicrates enriched themselves by taking temporary service under foreign masters. Iphicrates even went so far as to support the Thracian king, whose daughter he had wedded, against Athens. All these military men preferred to dwell elsewhere than at Athens. Abroad they could live in luxury and ostentation, while at Athens men lived simply and moderately, and public opinion was unfavorable to sumptuous establishments. The attitude of the generals to the city became much more independent when the citizens themselves ceased to serve abroad regularly, and hired mercenaries instead. The hiring of the troops and their organization devolved upon the general, and he was often expected to provide the means for paying them too. Here we touch on a vice in the constitutional machine, which was the cause of frequent failures in the foreign enterprise of Athens during this period. No systematic provision was made that, when the people voted that a certain thing should be done, the adequate monies at the same time should be voted. Any one might propose a decree, without responsibility for its execution, and at the next meeting of the assembly the people might refuse to allow the necessary supplies, or no one might be ready to move the grant. In the same way, supplies might be cut off in the middle of a campaign. This defect had not made itself seriously felt in the fifth century, when the leading generals were always statesmen too, with influence in the assembly, but it became serious when the generals were professional soldiers whom the statesmen employed. During the ten years after the peace of Callias, Athens was actively engaged in a multitude of enterprises of foreign aggrandizement, but she achieved little, and the reason is that her armaments were hardly ever adequate. The difficulties of her financiers, who had always to keep a theoric reserve, must be taken into consideration. End of chapter 13, section 5